This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Energy and Homeland Security Departments have agreed to work together to cut energy consumption and carbon production by DHS facilities. They've signed an agreement under which the Energy's Federal Energy Management Program, or FEMP, will give technical assistance to DHS. Here with the details, FEMP procurement team leader Sky Shell. Mr. Shell, good to have you on. Hi, Tom. It's good to be here. And agency engagement lead Hayes Jones. Ms. Jones, good to have you on. Hi, good morning. Let's begin with what this memorandum of understanding, this agreement that the two agencies have signed, what's the purpose here? What is it precisely you'll be collaborating on? The agreement really is about collaboration between the Federal Energy Management Program and really affirms the joint commitment to a strategic partnership to increase climate mitigation and adaptation at DHS facilities across the nation and to document replicable case studies. Under this partnership, FEMP will provide technical assistance and training to accelerate decarbonization and partner with DHS to share these replicable lessons learned with other agencies as well. Well, let's define some of the terms here, like when you say decarbonization, what does that exactly mean? Yeah, so it's really about reducing the carbon emissions from agency facility operations, making sure that we're aligning with the administration priorities and aggressive goals to set de- decarbonization uh, priorities for agencies. And does this mean what? Turning the air conditioning hotter in the summer and the colder in the winter? Or what are some of the contemporary ways of getting facilities to do this now? I thought most of them had been done already. So efficiency plays a large part. Energy efficiency is a large part of this agreement, working towards those efficiency mandates, and then also looking at the resilience of the facilities themselves. How do you prepare for energy and water outages, as well as the impact of climate change, and ensure that those facilities are ready to adapt and recover and respond as appropriate? Okay, and give us a sense of the scope of the facilities involved here. DHS, I think, is the second largest civilian department after Veterans Affairs, and they're all over the place. What types of facilities do you think offer the most potential here? DHS is really a great partner. They have a wide variety of facilities, from training to offices, all different types of facilities. So they're really a great case study and microcosm to use as a showcase to share those lessons learned across the federal government and across other agencies with similar types of facilities really enjoy working with DHS do their diverse mission um, and really get to try out and showcase our strategies in different types of facilities that then we can take to the other federal agencies and, and showcase those great case studies and lessons learned. And Sky, there's a FEMP solicitation out that is in connection with this agreement. Tell us about that. Yeah, Tom, I'd be happy to. FEMP has recently announced a federal agency call, and this is focused on uh, providing funds to federal agencies to help them implement carbon-reducing technologies, technologies that can increase their resilience, improve their efficiency, those sorts of things. Got it. So, in other words, what you are learning from DHS agreement could maybe provide lessons learned that could be applied across the government? Is that a good way to put it? Yeah, it is. And we hope uh, DHS will be a participant. This actual call is is open to all federal agencies, and we we hope that all agencies will uh, provide some project proposals to us. And definitely, we hope DHS will be uh, a major player in this. And we do hope that uh, these projects can be replicated within the agencies themselves and scaled up, you know, particularly like renewable generation that can power facilities and fleets of their EVs. Uh, Very excited about opportunities there. And that these will then be leveraged not only within an agency, but across agencies and maybe even more uh, broadly. We're hoping that the federal government will lead by example and will incorporate new technologies 
that other private sector and uh, municipal uh, governments can utilize as well in their efforts to reduce greenhouse gases and improve the efficiency of their operations. We're speaking with Sky Shell. He is the procurement team leader and with Hayes Jones, agency engagement lead at the Federal Energy Management Program at the Energy Department. And what are some of the newer technologies that might be available? I mean, energy saving by federal agencies goes back to the 1970s when they used to put stickers on light switches to, you know, be sure to turn me off when you leave the room during the first Arab oil embargo. And it's come a long way since then. What are some of the emerging types of technologies or strategies that agencies are looking at? You know, one of the things that we are really focused on is efforts to reduce greenhouse gases, okay? And and you can do this by improved efficiency, certainly, uh, with some of the projects that we're engaged in. uh, You know, we see deep energy retrofits that yield reductions of 40%, maybe as high as 6% with some projects that utilize new technologies that incorporate renewable energy, geothermal heat pumps that uh, have improved controls and microgrids, enabled bidirectional charging to utilize battery systems and renewable generation uh, in a way that enables federal buildings to be grid interactive. So uh, our efforts to shift loads can not only save the federal government money, but it can help the grid be more resilient. And it looks like there's also a revival or maybe an expansion of energy performance savings contracts. And these have been controversial in years past, but it sounds like they're coming into their own now. Yeah, Tom, I I think they are. I I think over the past several years of the federal energy projects that are reported to FEMP, over half of them are funded with these energy savings performance contracts, which are either ESPCs, energy savings performance contracts, or utility energy service contracts, basically using the talent and the resources of the utilities or the energy service companies to help federal agencies put projects in place and to arrange the financing that is paid for by savings generated by the project. So it doesn't have it doesn't have an impact on the federal budget. We're just converting the waste that is inherent in this old technology with the efficiencies in new technology to create savings that pay for the projects. It's really an excellent way to power, you know, investments in uh, the new technologies to achieve the goals of this administration. And Hayes, when you are giving technical assistance to DHS, who do you work with? What is the title of the person? Is it facilities managers? Is it program managers? Who's who's the point people for this type of work? So that's a great question. And we do traditionally work with the facility managers at federal agencies. And then we're also finding as we work in resilience that it's important to bring in the continuity of operations planners, the strategic planners to really get an integrated look as you're planning for the future for these facilities and taking into account kind of an interdisciplinary look at how to plan for either mitigation for climate change, adaptation to climate change, as we plan for resilience and and plan our efficiency projects in these facilities. In other words, what would happen if we got flooded or blown away by a hurricane or something? What would happen? Exactly. How do you plan to stay up and running while the event is happening? And then if something does happen, how do you plan to recover quickly from that to provide the mission and and carry out the mission in these federal facilities? And to get started on something with an agency as far flung as DHS, do you do some sort of a survey of the facilities to look at which ones, A, might be most promising to decarbonize and improve that way, and B, are the most prone to possible disaster occurrences? Yeah, so working with DHS, with their headquarters staff on, you know, how to prioritize across such a large agency, 
And then we're really working to pilot um, various risk-informed scenario planning with specific sites and then use those lessons learned, use those best practices from working deeply with a specific DHS sites to then share across with other sites as, as they're prioritized, as um, that risk-informed planning can really help them step through a systematic process. And a final question, you mentioned systematic process. Is there someone taking measurements here, keeping score so that you know, yes, the carbon went down this much in this period of time and so forth? So SEMS does have a, a whole section that at the agency level collects data on how agencies are doing, and then DHS internally will collect that data as well. For resilience, we're really focused on how do you show the impact of these measures of the projects and procedures that you're putting in place, and how does that show progress towards making you or the facility or the site more resilient? Hayes Jones is Agency Engagement Lead at the Federal Energy Management Program. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And Sky Shell is the FEMP Procurement Team Leader. Sky, thank you. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, 
quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. 
And as someone who's got an extensive background in federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If, if there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.